worksheet number 11, The Day the Devil Dies. Now, this is, this is going to be one of those topics that's going to perhaps expand on some thinking that you might have already had, but put some concrete bookends onto this whole great controversy between good and evil, between God and his enemy, between Christ and Satan. The day the devil dies. If you've noticed, he's been cast out of heaven, but still hasn't died yet. Millions upon billions of other people have died, but he keeps hanging on. And the question could be asked, when will he finally see his end? That's what we're going to address tonight, the day the devil dies. But before we get started, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all the many blessings. And Lord, as we study this particular topic, as we want to understand the devil's end, Lord, help us to learn practical lessons from it and help us by all means not to be a part of his end, but to go home with Jesus in the very end. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The day the devil dies. Let's begin in Luke chapter 10. That's going to be page 1005 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 10. Jesus is here having an interesting encounter with his disciples. In fact, a bigger group of his disciples, the 70, were sent out. And they were supposed to do the same type of ministry that Jesus was doing, healing the sick, preaching the new good news, the gospel to the poor. And notice in verse 17 what we, what's recorded in Luke chapter 10. When they return to Jesus, oh, they're excited. They're thrilled for all the things that they've seen through the power of Jesus' name happen in their ministry. And it says here in verse 17, Then the 70 returned in what state? With what? Joy. Saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I don't know if that hurt Jesus' feeling to think that they were surprised, right? But they're like, you won't believe it. Even the demons obey in your name. And notice what Jesus says in verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like what? Lightning from where? From heaven. Now we've studied the fall of Satan the casting out, that war in heaven, that war of words and not of weapons, that great conflict in the universe where Christ cast Satan out but did not blot him out of existence, and he was cast to the earth. And Jesus here says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And the picture that I always had in my mind was that Satan fell and he was struck down to the earth, boom. And lightning was a metaphor for speed, for quickness. That it would right? He was shot down from heaven, that kind of thing. But I want to demonstrate from the Bible that in this instance, I don't believe Jesus is speaking about quickness or speed when it talks about the casting out or the fall of Satan. In fact, Jesus uses the lightning from heaven metaphor for some other event. In fact, it's one we just looked at last night. Go back to Matthew chapter 27. I'm sorry, Matthew 24, verse 27. That's going to be page 961 in your pew Bible. Matthew 24, verse 27, Jesus speaks of his own return. And of course, his return, he's coming from heaven, right? And he employs the metaphor of lightning. Matthew 24, verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, why does he say that? We'll just look at the previous verse. And again, we studied this last evening, but verse 26. Therefore, if they say to you, speaking of the coming of Christ, look, he is in the desert. Do not go out. Right? Like, oh, you don't see him here, but he's over there. Don't go with them. Or... Look, he's in the inner rooms. He's in a secret kind of spiritual way has returned. No, no, no. Don't believe them. And then he says, For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. What does Jesus mean when he says his coming will be from heaven like lightning? Well, he means it will be visible. 
from east to west. It shines across the whole sky. No one's going to miss it. Right? And he also employs lightning, as we just saw, about the fall of Satan. And obviously it wasn't quick. It's been 6,000 years. Right? Surely he doesn't mean I saw him fall. Because Satan didn't fall like that from heaven. He didn't fall from the heights of glory in heaven to the depths of the grave and one fell swoop instantly. No. It wasn't quick like lightning, but apparently it will be visible like lightning. The whole universe will see for themselves. So again, lightning isn't a metaphor. Here we are in our fill in the blanks. Is not a metaphor for speed, but for visibility. Now, if you recall, in fact, we don't have to, let's just go back to Ezekiel chapter 28. When Satan was originally cast from heaven, that's going to be page 831 in your pew Bible. When Satan was originally cast from heaven, notice the reason given is so that everyone could see him. Ezekiel chapter 28 we're going to start with verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. That's the casting out of heaven. Fall, right? I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings for what purpose? That they might, what's that word? Gaze at you. What does it mean to gaze? To look, to see, to watch. That they could see for themselves. That they might gaze at you. Again, it goes on, it just continues in verse 18. You defiled your sanctuaries by the, multitude, by the multitude of your iniquity, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst, it devoured you, and I turned you to ashes in the sight, upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Why? Verse 19. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Notice this, he was cast out of heaven. He currently is a horror and someday will be no more forever. Do you notice the process language? That it, he was cast out, but not blotted out so that everyone could have an opportunity to see the end of Satan. So that at the final analysis, all, verse 19, who knew you among the peoples, everyone who had ever anything to do with you, are astonished at you. At the very final analysis, Satan will have zero sympathizers in the universe. No one will say, oh, well, he, you know, he was a pretty good guy, or his ideas are worth a shot, or maybe, maybe killing him is too harsh. I don't know. No one's going to have any sympathy for him left. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. There is a day when the devil will die. But we're living in a time when that has not occurred yet. So why is that? Well, let's outline what this fall from heaven is all about. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 12, the four steps of Satan's fall. I would like to demonstrate from Scripture, page 1182, by the way, Revelation chapter 12. I would like to demonstrate from Scripture... That Satan's, again, his fall from heaven was not from the height of glory to the depth of the grave in one shot. But actually, it takes four distinct steps. Okay? There are four. You ever play with that little metal coil toy? What was that thing called? It, thank you. And what's the one good thing a slinky can do? It can go down the stairs. Once you twist that thing up, by the way, it's useless, right? There's no more point. But it has one really cool trick. If you set it on a staircase at the very top and you just give it a little shove, right? You don't have to go down and shove each step. It just keeps going on its own, right? The original pushing it over triggers the chain of events that finally gets it all the way to the bottom. And you just sit there and watch the thing choom, 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 go down the stairs, right? Use this imagery as we look at the following text and you will see that Satan, his fall is not one big shot off a chasm, off a cliff, but is actually a sequence of steps down the stairs to the end. Do you understand the analogy so far? All right, let's watch it overlap with Scripture. Revelation chapter 12, starting with verse 7. We're going to look at the first casting out, the original push down the stairs. And war broke out where? 
in heaven. So he starts, and by the way, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from where? From heaven, right? So it starts in heaven. That's the first step. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So you can imagine he's like the slinky being kicked, right? A place was no longer found for him. So it continues reading. So, verse 9, the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. That's the original step one, casting out of Satan. But obviously he wasn't blotted out of existence. As Isaiah and Ezekiel says, the Lord wants everyone to see this fall. So we go on to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. By the way, all four steps are right here in order in Revelation chapter 12. And we've already studied them before, but Revelation 12 brings them all together in one. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Now we saw earlier that this Remember, Jesus Christ came to the earth himself, and he says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He was speaking about his death on the cross, right? When before all those people who knew him in heaven, his character was clearly revealed as the murderer Jesus had known he was all along, right? That violence that was within was finally unleashed on Jesus, and in one act they saw this is the character of God who would give himself Versus the character of Satan who would take everything for himself, even the life of God, right? The second phase was the casting out of Satan at the cross. And it, but at the cross, he still was not blotted out. Why is that? Well, because there's more than just simply the destruction of Satan that Jesus had in mind. Praise the Lord. Because if all he needed to do was demonstrate to those who had known Satan that he was worthy of a death sentence... He could have accomplished it the moment Jesus died. Satan could have died right along with him, right? Look, he killed the innocent son of God. What other evidence do you need? But praise the Lord, his plan is not simply called the plan of destruction. It's called the plan of salvation, the plan of redemption. He wants to do more than simply destroy Satan. He actually wants to save sinners, which is good news for us, by the way. Revelation chapter 12, 11 intimates this step. And they overcame him by what? The blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Phase three is those who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior do the same thing that the unfallen beings do and kick him out of their sympathies. No longer. I, we don't care about him. We're going to overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. We see what Jesus did. We accept his sacrifice on our behalf. And we are overcomers along with Christ powerful thought. And notice that Satan's influence in the universe is whittling down considerably. If the original estate and his original establishment in heaven is called, he's called Lucifer, son of the morning. He was the covering cherub, right? God established him. He was an ordained minister of God right there at the very presence of the Father. And his, his influence was universal. But when he was cast out of heaven, only a third of the angel hosts went with him. You can read that in Revelation chapter 7 as well. A third of the angels went with him. And his influence was whittled down. He was cast down to the earth, and oh, he has the earth following him now, but now there are people who are going to follow Jesus instead of Satan. And they're going to cast him out of their sympathies too. And his influence is whittled down. Until there's one final step. And what's amazing about this step it probably doesn't take place when you think it should. Let me explain what I mean. So now that Satan has been cast out of heaven, by the way, God, did God see through his shenanigans all the time? Of course. That's why he kicked him out in the first place. God saw it in his heart to begin with, right? But he needed other people to see it. So all those who knew him in heaven needed their chance to see it, and at the cross they saw it. Now we, who he died for, 
can see that contrast. And in our lives, we can choose this day whom we will serve if we're going to cast Satan out of our hearts and we're going to follow Jesus. And we can overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. So now, why not destroy him now? Well, let's take a look. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's, let's finish, by the way. Revelation 12. We didn't finish up our fourth step there. After, it says in verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. So these are people who are going to lay down their lives if necessary in faithfulness to God by overcoming, and that's thus demonstrating their overcoming of Satan. Now, verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows what's happening now, that he has a short time. He knows his time is short. His days are numbered. His time is running out. He understands this, that there is a stage four when he's going to be completely eliminated. So let's go to Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19. Starting with verse 11, we get a picture of the second coming of Jesus. Now, last night we talked about the return of the king, that it's going to be visible and literal and audible and global. Every eye will see it. The dead in Christ will rise first, but the wicked will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. There's going to be two groups, the sheep and the goats, the right and the left, the, the wheat and the tares. Some are going to go to the barn. Some are going to go to the burn. It's very, very clear. Okay? And Revelation chapter 19 gives a very... Uh, graphic description of the second coming event. Verse 11, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on his, him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on him that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. By the way, who wrote the book of Revelation? John. How did he open up his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, right? The Word of God. Who is this, the Word of God, whose name is the Word of God? Who are we talking about? Jesus Christ, right? Talking about the coming of Jesus. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And of course, as he comes, he comes with clouds, he comes with all of his angel hosts, and they're coming with him. Not as a humble baby, this time as a king executing judgment, right? Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepresses of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Very clear, this is the second coming of Jesus. Now, there's going to be some symbolic language in the next several verses here, but you get the picture of the destruction that it represents. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. It's a pretty gruesome scene. There's going to be apparently a great number of deceased people that the birds are going to feed on. Told you it was graphic, right? It's a picture book. goes on. And I saw, verse 19, the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So God is coming with his people, and there's who, there are people who are not looking forward to that, and they're going to rise up against him. Then the beast was captured and worked, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And we're going to come back to the mark of the beast. Trust me, we're getting there in our, later in our series. Okay? But for now... These two were cast alive into the lake of burning fire with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay, so everyone who's not looking forward is not going to be going, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him. He will save us. Everyone who ran and hid with the ox in the cave, it's going to be wiped out. It's a scene of horrific, universal death. Well, nearly universal death. You would think, at this point, surely, this is where Satan gets his, right? If the wicked are going to be destroyed, the king of the wicked should surely meet his end now. But look at the very next words. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, 
having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon. And notice that the linguistic tie to Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, with the verse where it says in verse 9, the dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. Notice it's the same being. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, apparently all the righteous are taken to heaven. Yay! As Paul talks about, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air to meet him. But everyone else will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Almost everyone else, that is. The one being who's left alive at the coming of Jesus, the one wicked being to be left alive, is Satan himself. Now, how fair is this? Notice this. And he's going to be for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. By the way, this chain seems to be a symbolic chain of circumstance as what has happened to all the other nations that would be there. They're all dead, right? There's nothing there to tempt, no one to talk to, no one to deceive. He's just stuck. But now notice this. So that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Which is a strong implication that the nations will be alive again to tempt and deceive. And now notice this language. But after these things, it is after the thousand years of being bound, he must be released for a little while. Not he will be, or he'll escape, or he'll sneak out. No, 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 no. He must be released for a little while. Now, how does this possibly make sense? How is it possible that Jesus returns and all the righteous dead rise first and all the living righteous go with him? The sheep or the wheat go into the barn. But all the tares, all the wicked ones are bound and they're thrown into the fire and they're destroyed with his coming. And you have a clean separation between the righteous and the wicked, the living and the dead. Yet this guy stays alive for another thousand years. And apparently at the end of the thousand years, he's going to get to go out and see the nations again. He's going to have an audience once again. How does this make sense? And how is it part of God's plan to destroy Satan? Let's take a look at this. Let's go to the next page now and fill in the blanks. The lone survivor among the wicked at the return of Jesus is whom? Satan himself. Instead of being destroyed, Satan is bound for 1,000 years. Instead of being destroyed, he's simply tied down. He's stuck. He's bound for 1,000 years. Of course, Satan can deceive the nations no more because at this point, they're all dead. They don't exist. They're just gone. And then the text says, after this set amount of time, after this thousand years, apparently Satan, and you've got to get this word in there, must be released for a little while. According to Scripture, that's the literal language of Scripture, that he must be released from this thousand-year prison. Apparently, somehow, in God's great plan to end sin once and for all, he has to wake up, has to be unleashed one more time. So let's, go, let's understand what's going on during this thousand years. Let's just keep reading the text. Go to verse 4 now. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their right hands. So these are those who came out of the great tribulation, who did not bow their knee, who did not receive the mark of the beast, who remained faithful to God to the very end. And apparently they're seated on thrones, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the redeemed, the righteous, are in heaven with Christ, sitting on thrones for a thousand years, the same amount of time that Satan is bound to this earth for a thousand years. 
Back to goes on to verse 5. But the rest of the dead, the rest of the dead, did not live again until, and here's our another implication, there is a resurrection of the wicked coming now, right? At the second coming of Jesus, there's a resurrection of the righteous, and the dead in Christ will rise, and notice what it says, rise when? First. That's interesting. So who's going to rise second? The dead not in Christ, right? Notice this again. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So there's another resurrection coming. Not just the one at Jesus' second coming. Interesting. Now, this is the first resurrection. Those who are sitting on the throne there. They've experienced the first resurrection of the righteous. They're reigning with Christ in heaven. The rest of the dead aren't going to come up until, what's the implication? The second resurrection, right? Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. So apparently, by the way, did these people die at some point? According to the text, had they died? Yes. It said very clearly. Verse 4 again. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Well, if you get beheaded, you're, you're dead, friends, right? For their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God, they have not worshipped the beast of his image. They had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they died, but then they lived again. They've been resurrected. And the scripture calls that the first resurrection. They experienced first death, but they don't have to experience second death, right? But, again, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. There's going to be a second resurrection. In describing that first one, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he whose part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, this is fascinating. When Jesus comes again, the Bible repeatedly says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to each according to his works. Okay? So when Jesus comes again, has the determination been made already who is righteous and who is wicked? Yes, very clearly. Right? He's going to separate. There's the sheep, there's the goats, there's the group for the barn and the group for the burn. Very clear. So there has already been a judgment before he even came the second time to determine who are the righteous and who are the wicked. And simply he comes to execute that judgment when he comes the second time to separate the sheep from the goats. Does that make sense? Okay? Let's take a look at this in the Bible just to make sure we see. Go back to Daniel chapter 7, page 864. We've seen this before in our prophecy study, but we're going to take a look at it again in the light of this current study. Daniel chapter 7. Starting with verse 7. Now notice the sequence again. After, I saw, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. Of course, that represents the kingdom of... They, two or three of you knew, that's Rome, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, then Rome. That fourth kingdom is Rome. Again, verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. There's a beast, and then it has ten horns, just like we saw the iron legs that have ten toes, divided Rome. I was considering the horns... And there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. This is the rise of the Antichrist power, the spiritual power that comes out of Rome, the Roman Catholic papacy. We've covered all of this before. Now, what happens during this time? Verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place. And if you recall from Revelation chapter 20, the judgment described after Jesus comes, thrones are put in place, right? So apparently when thrones are put in place, this is a judgment scene. And we'll see it from the language in the text as we continue. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, 
and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came from before him, and thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and here's very clear, the court was seated and the books were opened. This is a judgment scene in heaven. Now, verse 11, is this the second coming? No, this is before the second coming. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words with the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Now, when is the beast destroyed and his body given to the burning flame? We'll just quickly go back to Revelation chapter 19, as we just saw. In verse 20, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20, see if Revelation and Daniel match up on this point. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Right? So this is a... Revelation chapter 19 there describes the second coming of Jesus, and it talks about the beast being destroyed and being burned by fire. But notice that the judgment scene in Daniel chapter 7 precedes or comes before the second coming of Jesus. There is a judgment in heaven before Jesus comes, and let's think of the logic of it. Why would there be a judgment before the second coming? To determine, right, the sheep from the goats, right? Who is going in and who's not? Who's going to go to the burn? Who's going to go to the barn? Who can separate? So when Jesus comes, he doesn't have to come, come back to the earth, and then set up a courtroom scene and start judging people. No, 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 no. The judgment's already determined. When Jesus says, behold, I come quickly, and my reward is what? With me. To give. I've already been determined. I'm just coming to dole it out, to execute the judgment. There's already been an investigation beforehand, an investigative stage of judgment before Christ returns, and when Jesus comes the second time, he doles out the, the reward or the punishment, right? Some go to life and some to death. So if all of that has happened, then we see Satan, however, is bound for a thousand years when everybody else is dead, and he's just stuck. But after the thousand years, there's going to be another resurrection, a resurrection of the wicked. So let's think of the justice of this. And we have to critically think about this. If God truly is love, how in the world is it part of his loving, just plan to kill people at the second coming, wait a thousand years and wake him up again just to kill him again? I mean, if we're going to serve this loving God, and this is what his word says, we better understand this. This is a pretty important theme. So that's one question. Why would he kill everybody just to wake them up and kill them again? And why, of all the people who get to live, is Satan the one who gets to live? If there's one person who should be wiped out, it should be him, right? But he's not. How does this make sense? I just want to make sure that you see the accurate picture of what the Bible is describing, right? Now, there's this, going back to Revelation chapter 20 now. By the way, if you haven't noticed, Revelation 20 is kind of going to be our home base tonight. So you want to put a piece of paper in there or your finger or something. Revelation chapter 20. Back to 1188. Revelation chapter 20. Notice what the, what the righteous are doing during this thousand years. Verse 4. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Has there already been a judgment even before Jesus came? Yes. So there's been a judgment in heaven before Jesus comes. Jesus comes to execute the, the, the results of that judgment. Then he takes this, the righteous to heaven, and they do a work of judgment. Now, let me ask you a question. Are they determining who's going to be lost and who's going to be saved? No. Has that already been determined beforehand? Yes. Apparently, what they're doing is reviewing what has been done, Let's continue on. Verse 4 again, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Now, what does this judgment... Into? By the way, does the scripture... Is this only in one chapter of the Bible? Is it just this apocryphal uh, picture language? Because 
Surely you could be twisting that to mean whatever you want. Is there anywhere else in the Bible that talks about this judgment? Well, handily enough, it does, repeatedly. For instance, let's go to Revelation, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 6. Can't say things correctly tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul, by the way, this is going to be page, let's see here, 1102, 1102. The Apostle Paul dealt with some difficult individuals, difficult church members in the church of Corinth in particular. And it's good, it's a good thing that churches don't have difficult members anymore, so that's good. But Paul, poor guy, had to deal with difficult people, right? And notice in chapter 6 and verse 1 what he says. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Apparently one of the issues was they were having difficulties within the brotherhood, within the church family, and they were going to the court of law and they were trying to settle the disputes with legal matters. He's like, why don't you just do it in-house? Why don't you take care of it between each other? And then he lays out why that should happen. And notice this very carefully, his reasoning. Verse 2. Do you not know? And apparently this to him was common sense. This is one of the things you just should know. Do you not know that the saints will do what? Judge the world. The saints will judge the world. And if the world will be, and I love the logic of it, if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Apparently we should be developing discernment and judicious thinking even now because the Lord's going to entrust us to do a work of judgment. This is the argument of the Apostle Paul. Did you know you're going to be in charge of judging up there and you can't even settle matters between yourself here? Right? So he goes on to verse 3. Notice this now. Do you not know that we shall judge what? Angels. We're going to judge the earth and angels. How much more than things that pertain to this life? Well, that makes total sense. Do you not know that we shall judge the world? We shall judge angels? Let's take a look at a few other texts that talk about this. The Apostle Peter picks up that same theme. 2 Peter chapter 2, page 1162. 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 4. And tell me if this doesn't sound like the language of Revelation 20. Revelation chapter 2, I mean, 2 Peter chapter 2, and verse 4. For if God did not spare the what? Who did what? All right, so the angels who sinned, but did what with them? Cast them down. Have we seen that in the book of Revelation? Yeah? Okay. Cast them down to hell which we'll have a whole study on hell. Don't worry, that's coming up. And deliver them into what? Chains of darkness to be reserved for what? Judgment. Notice he cast them out of heaven, but didn't destroy them. But he reserves them, chains them, and preserves them for a day of judgment to come. Right? Very clear that there is a coming judgment, and it's interesting that it uses this language of chains them down, waiting for this judgment. Now, let's go to the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation, that tiny little sliver of a book, Jude, page 1173, Jude 6. By the way, we've seen Paul, we've seen Peter, we've seen Jude, and of course John in the book of Revelation. Basically, all the New Testament writers keep coming back to this theme of a coming judgment after Jesus has come. Jude 6, And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. By the way, what's an abode? It's a dwelling place. It's your house. It's where you live, right? That's talking about them being cast out of heaven. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting what? Chains under darkness for the what? Judgment of the great day. Continually they're looking forward to this judgment where even the angels 
all the way those ones who were used to be with Lucifer in heaven, they were all cast out together. They've been reserved for judgment for this great day to come. Very clear. Let's look at one more. Matthew chapter 8. Page 942 in your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 8. This, I believe, is fascinating. From the lips of demons themselves. I mean, if you don't believe the Bible writers, believe a demon. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's the punchline that we want in there, but, <laughs> but you get the concept. Even the demons understand this scenario that we're talking about. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has a fascinating encounter with two uh, demon-possessed men. Notice this in verse 28. When he had come to the other side of the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Apparently, there are these two demon-possessed men who made the tombs their home and just kind of scared everybody and tormented them. It was an awful scene. And suddenly, verse 29, they cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? By the way, did the demons know who Jesus was? Isn't it fascinating? The Jews were always like, now, if you, are you sure? Who do they say? No, no, but the demons have no problem. You're the son of God. They know exactly who they're talking to and who they're dealing with. And he says, they say to him, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Now, notice their question. Have you come here to torment us before what? The time. Do they understand there's an appointed time coming? That's right. And they see Jesus coming, like, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. Hey, 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 this isn't according to the schedule. What are you doing here? Fascinating. All throughout the New Testament, from the lips of demons themselves, they're looking forward. I don't know if looking forward, but they're anticipating this coming judgment. And obviously, again, go back to our worksheet. Obviously, these saints who will judge the world that the Apostle Paul talked about are not determining who should be saved or lost as Christ already divided the righteous from the wicked at his second coming. That's already been determined. But they are reviewing the judgments made and ratifying them with their approval. And here's the reason. It's italicized. It's in bold. It's got an exclamation point. It matters to God what his creatures think of him. He wants all those who will be saved and uh, living throughout eternity to understand why this destruction happens that's going to be happening. Okay? He wants them to take a look at, for a thousand years, look at all the books, look at the whole judgment, the judgment I just completed in heaven that I came down here to execute. Now I want you to review it. Because you might have questions. Why is Aunt so-and-so not here? Or why is <clears throat> this guy over here? I mean, I'm happy to see him, brother, but how is it possible that... Because we can't see the heart, right? But apparently, recorded in heaven are every secret thing. Scripture makes this patently clear. Everything. Why is it you're here? Which, by the way, is I'm glad that if you accept Christ, your record gets blotted out. So they don't have to look through every nook and cranny. They just see covered by the blood of Jesus. You're like, oh, that makes sense. That's why you're here. But there are people who do choose not to be covered by the blood of Jesus. And they're like, no, 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 I don't want anything blotted out of my record. I'm going to stand in my own defense. You ever heard of, you heard the, uh, probably slaughter, but the, the, the little saying that a crook who defends himself has a fool for a lawyer? Yeah. I believe that there are people who have had an option to have their whole record blotted out by the blood of Jesus. They just don't want it. They're like, no, 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 I'd rather, I'm, I'm pretty square on Satan's side. I'm good, thank you. Okay. And thus these saints are reviewing and ratifying, saying, Lord, you're right. I totally see why this makes sense. This makes sense now. And if you see what's going on here, in the very first step of Satan's fall, Christ understood the inside out. He understood the end from the beginning. He already knows all that needs to be known. Right? But those around him in heaven didn't. So they had to cast him out instead of blotting him out of existence. 
But when they saw the cross, and they'd witnessed the 4,000 years of history of all the things that went on up to that point, they said, now we see it. He's his own living record. Go ahead. We're with you. Pull the trigger. But now we have that choice. Are we going to be saved or are we going to be lost? Are we going to have our record covered by the blood of Jesus and overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb? Or are we going to stand with Lucifer? I don't need your law. I don't need your forgiveness. I don't need your way. I'm, I'm good. But the righteous, even when they're resurrected, can't see why the wicked are lost. They just see simply that they are. But now Christ opens the books. says, you have a thousand years. Those seats that were taken, you sit on them now. Take a look. Flip through. Take your time. Ask any question you want. I don't want to go forward in history with any questions left unanswered. Everyone gets an opportunity to understand why anything that has been done has been done. Let's skip down now. Uh, let, me, let me show you something. I'm going to skip down to this. Psalm 149. Because you would think that the destruction, the second coming of Jesus, and going to heaven, that's when everything will be happy. But obviously, there's still a work to do after the second coming of Jesus. This, the devil is still alive. You've got to deal with him somehow. And the righteous still need to understand what's going on in God's mind. So he opens the book to them. So yes, while the righteous are thrilled to be saved and in heaven, there's still a difficult work to do. It's a bittersweet experience, if you can say that, right? And I believe that's what we see in Psalm 149. Watch this. Let's start with verse 9. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind the kings, their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all the saints. Isn't that bizarre? They're like praising the Lord, glory, happy, happy, happy. But at the same time, there's a sword in their hand, they're reviewing the judgment, and there's an execution of that judgment still to come. It seems to be the experience of the saved that they're going to have during that thousand years. So let's go back to Revelation 20, our home base. Revelation 12, chapter 20. Verse 7. It just picks up right chronologically what's going on here. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, which again is a reference to the resurrection of the wicked. Now he's going to have people to go out and if you know, play with or toy with or sport with to deceive. And we'll go out to, and there it is, verse 8, and we'll go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for what purpose? Battle. You can imagine, Satan's been alone for a thousand years, the greatest mastermind of evil the universe has ever known. And he's had no one to talk to, no one to tempt. He's just laying plans. He's just reviewing his own. He's reviewing his own little judgment, by the way. He's looking back on everything he does. And then when those wicked rise up from the ground, what's the very first thing he does? Deceives, right? This is his, this is his only effective tool. From the beginning of the great controversy to the very end, all he does is deceive people. By the way, who's the only person who can raise people from the dead? Jesus Christ, right? But what's probably the very first deception that Satan does? Graves start opening, people coming up, and you can almost imagine them. You're welcome. But someone's stolen your kingdom. Look, they took what's rightfully yours. We need to go take it back. And his first goal is to deceive them and gather them together for what purpose, according to Scripture, for 
battle. And perhaps the, some of the saddest lines in Scripture right here, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Mm. It's a massive army. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And of course, the, it jumps to the end. It's not very much of a battle because what's going to be their end? Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Put a pin in that. We're going to be coming back to that when we study hell. Okay? Which, again, the message is entitled, The Good News About Hell. And I know you're looking at that. That doesn't sound like good news. you got to come back. Okay? But... What's the point of just waking them up just to have them rush to the city and destroy it? Well, the punchline, the purpose, is found in the preceding verses. And the ones that follow, I'm sorry, the preceding verses, verse, starting with verse 11. What happens before they're destroyed that makes this whole thing make sense? Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Notice what when Jesus came the second time, they fled away from his face and they hid. This is the same Jesus now. The same one that they ran away from is now their judge on this great white throne. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. So now these dead who have been alive right now, they're standing before God. Books are open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their what? Works. Right? They stand in their own record. I'm good. I'll let my record speak for itself. And the dead are judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire, this is the what? Second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So before they're destroyed by fire, they face their record one more time. Because if you notice, God has understood the whole thing from the very beginning, step one. In step two, the unfallen beings have been watching this whole thing and they understand all the things. The deception of Satan, they see this deceiver unmasked, He's a murderer from the beginning. They know what he's all about. Step three, the righteous who accept Jesus Christ through his power overcome Satan, and they see his deceptions. They want nothing to do with it. Their allegiance is for Jesus Christ, and they reject Satan. And then Jesus comes again, who's the only group who hasn't ever seen what Satan's all about. The wicked. Think about the power of this, friends. Jesus raises them up, to give them a chance to see the books of record. Even though they're going to die forever. Friends, it even matters to God what his enemies think of him. Think about that. He could have an opportunity to wipe. They're never going to be around to ask questions anyway, right? But that's not good enough for God. He doesn't want to only be right. He wants every creature under heaven to see for themselves and to understand clearly and to have no more questions left as to why anyone is saved or anyone is lost, why Satan should live and why Satan should die. Because they've seen for themselves. It matters to God what people think, even those people who are against him think. So we go here to the end. The only ones who had not yet to see the contrast between Christ and Satan are the wicked. They've been deceived the whole time, right? They even get deceived when they're resurrected. And Christ says, look, let me, let me show you. This is your record. This is the character that you have decided to form. This is the one who's responsible for it. It's not me. It's Satan. This isn't another chance at salvation, by the way, but simply their opportunity to, stand why, to understand why they're lost. Have you ever run into people who you show them like DNA videotape evidence of them being wrong, 
And they're still not sorry they did it. But they finally acknowledge, fine, you got me. Right? At some point, the weight of evidence is just simply so clear that there's no more obfuscating, no more dodging, no more hemming and hawing, no more hiding. Just, yes, fine. You're right. The Bible looks forward to this day when everyone is going to see the difference between good and evil. And they'll see for themselves the person they have become in the choices they've made in their life. They see the character they have developed would not be satisfied living in God's pure kingdom. And fill in this blank, please. God's, I, I heard this from a pastor that I respect, and I love the way he said it, so I stole it right out from under him. God's going to take everyone to heaven, comma, who would be happy there. The question is not, is God going to take me or not? The question is, do you even want to go? That's what this life is for, is to develop a character that would fit into that society, that would love the law of God and not always be in rebellion, not ever be in rebellion, who would see what his way is just and true, and you love it, it resonates with you, it harmonizes with you, so that no risk of this ever happening again ever comes up. God's going to take everyone to heaven who would be happy there. So I believe what we see in Revelation chapter 20 here is people not from a sense of love or not from a sense of repentance, but just from the overwhelming, clear evidence. Yes, God is right. Satan is wrong. And honestly, Lord, I'd rather simply die than live with you. But everyone... By the way, the uniqueness of this moment is the only time in the universe's history when everyone who has ever lived will all be alive at the exact same time. And in one moment, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, Isaiah, looked forward to it as we close down here. Isaiah chapter 45, page 702. Listen to the language that the Lord employs to talk about this opportunity salvation and the sadness of the lost. Isaiah chapter 45, starting with verse 22, page 702 in your pew Bible. Listen to the Lord. He says, look to me and be what? Saved all you ends of the earth. This is an opportunity for everyone, for God so loved what? It doesn't for God so loved the Jews or for God so loved the Christians. God so loved the world. Everyone has an opportunity. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. Notice not everyone's fine with this, but everyone, I mean, not everyone loves the Lord, but even his enemies will admit, you were right, and I was wrong. Friends, if you're still alive tonight, <laughs> you have a choice to make. You do not have to be destroyed with the wicked. You don't have to, you know, we all, if Jesus doesn't come soon, we're all going to face first death. Can we just be honest about that? If Jesus doesn't come, we're going to die. I mean, I don't want to end on that note. Hey, we're all going to die. But it's true, right? I don't know if it's old age or a bus or cancer. I don't know what the thing is, but we're going to die. But that's first death. But there's no reason anyone in this room has to face second death. Jesus has provided a way out. The question is, would you even want to go if he offered it to you? That's what this life is for. Has the presentation made sense? Was it logical? Praise the Lord. I hope beyond just saying it made sense that it resonated, that God is a God of justice and a God of mercy, and a God of love from beginning to end. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a God who takes his time to get the process right. You didn't blot Satan out the moment you saw the sin and the iniquity in his heart because you knew that wouldn't solve the problem. And because you care about the righteous, you have allowed the wickedness to mature. And Lord, even after the righteous and the wicked have been separated, you'll give 
both a chance to see the record and why your justice is just and fair and righteous and right. So Lord, help us to see it now while we can. And in this life, Lord, help us to be drawn to Jesus. Send your Holy Spirit to those who might be struggling or wrestling with this decision. And Lord, help every one of us to continue to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ so that when he returns, going with him will just be like going home. Lord, it's my prayer for everyone here. I pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.